Hey, Trey. Hey, Nate. How's it going? Going well, man. How about yourself? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. We want to welcome everyone out to the Craft Notes podcast. And just to give you a little bit of context, since this is our first episode, the Craft Notes podcast is brought to you by Motif Research. And Motif Research is a sophisticated research service that leverages a suite of products to be able to help you facilitate and expedite your qualitative research. And then we kind of pack all that into a powerful system of record. We want to talk a little bit about what the Craft Notes podcast is going to be and what it's going to be about. And we have seen a huge need for some content around the world of qualitative research and how to be able to integrate the activities and the skill sets that are needed to be able to do really effective qualitative research inside of an organization. The Craft Notes podcast will dive into some of the field guides that we create within that, within Craft Notes. If you go to the Craft Notes blog there, as well as we'll we'll just try and talk in a more elaborate way in a discussion format that we're not able to in a, in a field guide. So to start out, we want to talk a little bit about something that Trey and I have talked about quite a bit over the last couple of years, which is the value of just trying to understand the value of research in the product development process, which we don't think actually has a significant amount of buy-in yet, you know, across organizations and with, with key stakeholders. So I think to really understand why you would actually do some sort of research when you're building a product, I think most of the time when that's misunderstood or that's not being done, I would say that's usually because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of how value is created inside of organizations. Like, do you think, Trey, that most organizations think about, can articulate, and are pretty sophisticated about thinking about their own value chain, about how value gets delivered to to an end customer? I would say that chains in larger organizations is definitely difficult just because how complex they really get. And I think when people take a step back and try to simplify a business model or what a business is actually doing, then it's easier to look at what the value chain is, right? So like, even if you look at simple software products or even like a food delivery service, right? You can kind of go like, hey, here's the raw resources. This is how we acquire them. This is how we process them. This is the design that goes in place and how it gets manufactured. And then this is how it gets sold and delivered, right? You can kind of see that linear trajectory for that value of like, where do we get with like the beginning? to where it ends up with a customer. But then when you kind of really actually blow it up and we're like, well, kind of we're talking about here, like there's research in there as well, right? There's design in there as well. Like there's things that a company does to provide value to their employees. So their employees can continue to provide value in the value chain to the customer. And and sometimes those value chains can become cyclical when you look at the customers also providing value back to the company, right? Either in terms of, you know, positive word of mouth or reviews or referrals or things like that. And so I really haven't seen a lot of companies, at least from like a grand level, be able to articulate that yeah. well. And I think that's a big struggle because I think a lot of companies don't see all the things that are going in there, especially where like either the bottlenecks are or the gaps. I think that's a huge thing that happens is they don't always see where everything's coming down the chain, how it's all fitting together yeah. and where there's kind of those, those losses. And I think as we've talked, like research is one of those things I think is definitely a gap, right? Where, where we just kind of jump over this part of the value chain and just kind of assume things keep going yeah. 
when there's definitely something that needs to be happening. Absolutely. I, I think most companies that are able to articulate what their value chain is are usually physical product companies. So if you're an Apple, yes, you can usually articulate what your value chain is, usually because there's costs associated and other vendors or companies like Foxconn, for example, is, is a massive yeah. part of Apple's value chain. So of course, you're going to be able to understand where that fits in and how it fits in and how integral it is. But within a software company, especially, I think digital products, I really don't think that there's a lot of thought put into how value is being created for the end customer. And to your point, what the cyclical aspects of internally that are taking place with that. I think a lot of times marketing organizations within digital product organizations are a little bit more sophisticated about the value chain because it's essential to the go-to-market. So trying to think about how you start to distribute and attract customers, you know, I, th I think that's a little bit better understood and thought about. But really the internal value chain, thinking about the activities and the processes that your solution or offering goes through before it actually ends up in the hands of a customer. I don't think that most organizations think about it often, if at all. So I, I think uh, yeah. that's why I think it would be good for us to chat a little bit about, about what that looks like and how that actually starts to help organizations understand the value of research in that process. So I, I think the number one thing here is that when you look at a really simple value proposition, it's usually pretty simple to understand the value chain. So let's take, yeah. uh, I think the example that Trey and I were using earlier today was a kitchen table. So if you take a kitchen table, you can pretty well articulate the steps that it's going to go through from the time that it's a tree to the time that you're putting it on a show floor or something like that, right? It's pretty simple. I don't think that it takes a, a lot of important time and energy to be able to understand what goes into that value chain. That being said, when you try to alter or change or add some sort of innovative nuance to a value chain, there's some inherent complexity that comes into that, that makes it so that the practitioner, the person creating the product has to be articulating what the value proposition should now be. So for instance, if you add some complexity into that that same kind of kitchen table example, what happens when you need to furnish your entire apartment in a day on a budget, which is really Ikea's value proposition, right? Exactly. What, what context does a business need to understand about that goal so that whatever they provide, whatever solution they build, whatever services they include, what context needs to be understood? So, that they can actually articulate what the value proposition should be so they can actually understand how the value proposition should be created, uh, the steps it should go through, the activities that need to take place, et cetera. So yeah, we'd, we'd love some of your thoughts there on uh, maybe what's missed and uh, what some of the, that complexity looks like with needed context. I like the example you use with Ikea because when you say the value proposition as far as like being able to furnish your whole home within an entire day, that's not something that'd be easily MVP'd. The first version of Ikea that would be able to accomplish that, to be able to actually deliver on that value proposition wouldn't be a small thing. <laughs> yeah. And the thing kind of goes back to like, where does this value chain start, right? And it really does start, especially in these new innovative areas where things haven't been done before with the idea, right? With the hypothesis, 
of what needs to take place, right? To serve the market, to serve the customer. But then that missing portion, like I said, is actually how do you validate that, right? Because even if, you know, someone has a really good idea, you know, to start something like Ikea, yeah, maybe if, if they've got some good showmanship skills and sales skills, they can go and like raise some money on that and, and get started that way. But the critical part we want to talk about here is that need for the research and the value chain, right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we have this hypothesis that, look, it's difficult to furnish a home. One, furniture is expensive. Two, I have to go to a bunch of different stores, right? People probably just experience these pains. It's like, how can we continue to take this assumption, right? Or this, this hypothesis of, of why this is such a problem. And even if people want this problem solved, and how can we turn that to something more concrete? Do we feel confident? Like, all right, we think there's something here. Yeah, let's 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 take yeah. millions of dollars, build a store, build a product line, right? And like you said, like taking the consideration, like, okay, what all needs to be included in the home? Like, we're not talking just tables anymore. We're talking rugs. We're talking nightstands and lamps and dishes and silverware and all that stuff, right? Like, that's not just going to happen overnight. You'd want something, like I said, more concrete than just a guess or just a hunch to be able to go on that. Like I said, and that's, that's the part that makes this predictable. Yeah. And I think yeah. much more legible for product practitioners. Yeah. I think your, your point of, uh, of predictability is, is a really great one. And one I want to dive into later as well. I think the interesting part here is when these ideas originate, try and pinpoint where in the value proposition that's happening within your organization. How did you actually observe that somebody has the pain point of needing to furnish their entire apartment in a day on a budget. When did, when did that pain point actually become observed? Was it canonized? How did it actually get accepted and get buy-in across the organization? Those That's exactly, of, I think even more complex too, it's like, it's like whose job was that, right? right? Like what, yeah. you know, who in the organization was actually thinking about this? And to your point, like even had the position and the influence to be able to make something like that happen. Completely in true, yeah. Yeah, a huge integral part of that is, is the roles and accountability that come with that. And I think the, the interesting part here is that this is a beautiful segue into the, the next point that we've kind of talked about before, which is how, how this is usually done inside of the, especially the digital product industry today, is usually one of, one of three ways. And, you know, we, we would like to add a fourth. We feel obviously and are opinionated about the fact that it's a better way. But the, the one of three ways here, right? <laughs> one of which could be you have a really important key stakeholder that somewhere in the process of that value chain decides that the qualifications for deciding what should be built is salary, experience, authority, and position. So essentially, based upon the fact that they are the CEO or an executive, they decide that they're the ones that are sophisticated enough to be able to decide and articulate what the value proposition should be. So now you have this person with extremely good intentions who has taken a complete and random guess and is taking the backing of their authority and putting all the resources of the organization behind that. So that's that's one. You know, I think Marty Kagan uh, has, I think, dubbed that the, the pretty pig putting lipstick on the, you know, on the pig, essentially, you know, you have this really terrible idea that comes down the line and all of the rest of the organization is expected to kind of put lipstick on it. So yeah, there's, there's that, right. The, the second that you and I have talked about is really a little bit of a, I think a misunderstanding and a degradation of the lean startup principles, um, which people have just kind of distilled down into build, measure, learn. 
And I, I think the way that you and I would describe that is, is that it's really, you're just leading them with a hypothesis. Would you agree? Is that how you would articulate that? Exactly. I would say it's you are seeing something happening or you are making a guess, an educated guess, because you're probably a professional. You, you've seen some things in the industry or in the market, and you may even be doing like quick little things to grab some data on it Light, right? lightly and, it, and it feel it out. <laughs> yeah, it's all just like, you know, you know, we're finding stuff here or there on the Internet and, and then you just run with it. Right. It's like, well, I think building X, Y, Z will fix this problem. Let's do it. We build it. We throw it out there. And then, like I said, this idea of like, oh, well, did it fix it or not? And you can kind of just get in this like cycle of like hypothesis burn where it's like, oh, well, that was wrong. Let's do something else. Right. And it's just as we'll talk about more, I'm sure later, but it's just it's very costly oh, yeah. and very expensive oh, yeah. to keep putting out features and products that just don't win. It's very expensive. Yeah. With, without taking the time to properly understand what it should be. And now now we're both getting eager to talk about how we think it should be done. But yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the third, which is really probably the industry standard, um, which uh, I think has, you know, I, there are still principles I'm fond of, um, which is agile. And the, the principle of, of agile, you know, there's going to be some agile missionaries listening to this that'll just burn me at the stake. But the principle behind agile is, hey, we don't know upfront what the requirements should be. And we don't need to. And we reject the thought and the premise of meeting requirements up front. So what we're going to do is we're going to start building. But in the process of building, we're going to keep really short feedback loops with the customer at all times. So there'll be some product owner or product manager enabling and opening up lines of communication with an end user or a reference customer. And those, those lines of communications are essentially feeding into what's constantly being built and the team does their best to stay nimble enough to be able to respond to any changes that might come up that if it's the right thing for the customer then we we transition and we move right a lot of great a lot of great principles in there however it really falls under a lot of the same paradigms that we just talked about with the build measure learn issues right where you're often leading upfront with very little understanding of what something should be. You know, we're not, we're not talking about waterfall in comparison, agile missionaries here. We're just talking about getting context about understanding human behavior, about being, being able to empathize. And then you, you keep iterating and you keep responding. And then what happens when you actually talk to a statistically significant amount of people and you find out that something needs to change entirely, you're, you're throwing out responsibly, you're throwing out a lot of work that you probably could have foreseen in a still agile and nimble way. The agile methodology is not without its issues. And we haven't even spoken yet about the fact that it's, uh, you know, it leads to an insane amount of meeting bloat and the operational costs that this company (laughs) trying to build in predictability into when something will be released instead of predictability into what something uh, will be in the marketplace and how successful it could be. So I, I think that those are the three models that you and I have talked about a lot. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think they're most prevalent in how organizations are running. Yeah. The scariest definitely being like the, the parachute in visionary executive, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to come down from my tall castle and tell you folks here in the dirt, how it's going to look. Yeah. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, the, the alternative way of thinking about this that we would like to propose 
is not something that is new, is not something that we invented. It's actually something that's been done for thousands of years. And it's really leveraging the scientific method. This principle of the scientific method has been adapted and changed and leveraged for quite a long time. It's, it's very well, I don't know, tested. <laughs> um, yes. You could, say, you could say that. Pretty much any major scientific advancement ever has come about because of the scientific method. I think what we're proposing is to be able to start thinking about what you should do in the future and how you should do it in a more inductive and scientific way. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about what we mean by that. So when we talk about this process, we, we commonly dub it the theory building process. Um, and we're, we're specifically, you know, if anybody's familiar with, with mixed method research and grounded theory and some of these things like that, we're talking about inductive theory building here that instead of, instead of this kind of lead with a hypothesis, perpetually you know, leverage feedback instead of feed forward activities, we're, we're actually gonna start thinking about things in a scientific way. Uh, and we're, we're gonna talk today about what we actually mean by that because uh, we know that there's some loaded context there. We, we wanna dive into a, a little bit into what we mean there, but Trey, anything to add there, man, on, on what we mean by uh, actually building a theory? Yeah, I think the big thing, I will touch on this later as well, is that especially for people who are doing agile, like this really is like almost a step, I guess, before the build kind of process, right? Where like I said, it's really kind of going in and understanding. And it's really the the process of, you know, transitioning those hypotheses into a theory. And if you think about any popular theories in terms of science, right? Like it's one of those things that gives you that predictability that you can say, based on what we've seen here, based on the body of work that's been conducted, and what we've seen through our research, we can say with a high level of confidence that this is what will happen, right? That, and from a product standpoint, what that looks like is that these kind of solutions will fit the needs of these customers in this market, right? And having that upfront when you're going into the process of delivering those products is extremely powerful and helps you avoid like I said, the, the meeting blow, hopefully, but also the biggest thing is building the wrong products at the wrong time. Absolutely. I, I think something that you and I have talked about quite a bit before is the, the principle that you, in, in the process of building the wrong thing, you can only be right once about the fact that it's cheaper to build a guess, <laughs> right? Yes. If you, if you build a conjecture, assuming that it is cheaper operationally, you know, time to market, whatever it might be, assuming that it's cheaper, that is only true once. The minute that you are wrong, you automatically implicate the costs of building whatever you're doing entirely over again. Absolutely. And there's also even the risk too, that like, if that kind of validates that method of thinking that you can kind of build that, you know, man in the castle kind of mentality or the pretty pig mentality, right? Where it's like, oh, we got it right. We're just going to keep doing this, yeah. right? We're going to keep being the visionaries. And we were right once, like who's to say we're not going to be right again, which like I said, can be almost more costly, yeah. right? <laughs> may, may have been right for you to get wrong the first time. Absolutely. But. Yeah. I think, I think uh, before we dive into what we're talking about here too, I, I think there's a couple assumptions that we're making about uh, anyone that might be interested in trying to integrate this type of process into their organization. And the first of which is that you have buy-in to the fact that uh, human-centered design or goal-directed design or 
domain-driven design, whatever you want to call it, that you have buy-in to that, those methodologies, that you understand the practices of understanding behavior and designing before implementation and the process of empathy building is extremely important and that it adds value inherently to any product you build. I think we'll, we'll build on that as we, as we chat a little bit further, but I think it's super important to be able to recognize the fact that in this day and age, we cannot move to implementation before some stage of understanding. It's not viable for any organization to automatically start building something without any premise of design or understanding. We're, we're too far into this. It's not acceptable anymore. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things like if you say that to a room of people, right, where it's like, hey, the goal here is to truly understand your customer and to truly understand your market. Like, I feel like I'm like, yeah, like that sounds like a great thing we should do, right? But like I said, because of the nuances, I think in just kind of theories and things that have already been done previously, like this just kind of gets lost, right? And and we feel like, like I said, we're going to go these other more expensive, more taxing routes to try to understand the customer. And we could just, just, we could start with that off initially, trying to understand them and then be able to deliver to them mm-hmm. and meet their needs. So what do we mean by going out and building a theory? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that we have to talk about is what is a theory? What is a theory and how does it actually compare to what a hypothesis is? I think the word hypothesis is really well understood by most of the industry, especially anyone that has tried to be able to do any sort of lean startup methodologies, for that matter, anything regarding agile. I mean, it's commonly used a lot of times in that context as well. So I would say that the first thing we have to understand is what is the nuance there? The nuance being that a theory has some pretty specific parameters attached to what it is, what qualifies something being a theory. The simplest being is that it's the most downstream aspect of what a hypothesis might become. So a hypothesis meaning that we've observed some sort of behavior or phenomenon, and we now have a proposed explanation for why that's happening and how it's happening. And we're going to get test either a solution or an explanation for that phenomenon. And a theory being, hey, not only have we built this hypothesis, but we might have tried several hypotheses and we saw it proven correct over and over and over again. It was repeatedly correct. So that's that's one one parameter. Uh, A second parameter would be that it builds an explanatory framework. So it has, just by understanding what a theory is, it actually helps you understand and it explains the phenomenon that it's attached to. It uses constructs and these principles to be able to actually explain the phenomenon uh, that it's attached to. And we'll give some examples about what this means. Trey and I were talking about some really good examples earlier today. One of the last ones here is that it's falsifiable, meaning that uh, not only has it been proven, you know, proven true repeatedly, but it has this explanatory framework attached to it. But third, you know and you understand what characteristics of measurement will help you understand and disprove your own theory. So what, what things will not only help you know that you're successful, what, how, do you, how will you know that this theory is false? That your way, your solution, or a proposed explanation of why a phenomenon is happening 
how will you know that it's false? And if that doesn't exist, then it's not a theory. So anything to add to the tray? Yeah, I just wanted to share a quick example to kind of explain, like I said, what, what this kind of looks like. And recently I worked on some research with, with a team where we were looking at a group of professionals who were customer facing and that over the course of years it had you know several tools and, and processes built for them to help them do their job. We were kind of tasked with trying to understand the phenomenon that there are some tools and processes that were really well adopted and some things that were just completely not adopted at all. And so there's kind of this mixed adoption going on. That's kind of the phenomenon we were observing. And we looked at several hypotheses, but kind of the strongest one at the time that we were thinking about, that I was thinking about, was that my assumption was that these tools and processes that are being used were easy to use, yeah. right? They were well-built, they were elegant, they were easy to get to, few clicks, right? All the kind of things that you would look at as like, okay, of course they're going to do this because this is an easy thing to do that's part of the job and it helps them. You know, the other things that are being done, they're not as easy, more clicks, harder to get to, right? A little more difficult to understand, not as good as documentation, all those kind of things that would just make some more friction for the process. That was kind of the hypothesis we went in to the research. But as we started talking and doing ethnographic research sessions with the different uh, users, what started coming up early on and then persisted and kind of did hit that level of like, you know, breadth in terms of data from and feedback from these users was that what users used, what the things they would do, they would do even hard and difficult things. They do the easy things as well, but they were doing hard and difficult processes if they believed that one, their manager cared about it or two, if they saw other individuals, yeah. other colleagues doing it as well. Yeah. Right. And so when we kind of got done with this whole research process, then we had this theory, right? And the theory was in place that like, okay, when it comes to building tools and processes for these individuals, for these professionals, right? If there isn't manager buy-in in a way that a manager is tied into it, and if there isn't a way where they can see other colleagues doing it as well, there's going to be low adoption, right? And so now we had this theory in place, this way we could kind of look forward in terms of building new tools and processes to be able to see how this would change our judgment and change the things that we do. And the data we had, like I said, the way to falsify it was like, well, if we implement this new process, right, if we start thinking about, hey, when we build new things, a manager has to be tied in, we have to make it so others can see others doing it, then it's not going to pick up. Fortunately, as it was being played out, it has worked out that way. The theory has come out to be conclusive with our research. Yeah. But kind of your point as far as it being falsifiable, like those two components are, are very company specific, right? It was team specific. Those are both kind of culture things and they could change, right? In six months, a year from now, those things could change. And all of a sudden that theory becomes false, right? And then you can have to go to the drawing board again and kind of run through that research again um, to develop a new theory moving forward. Yep, absolutely. I think... I think that's a, that's a perfect example of the inductive research that we're talking about here. We've used the word inductive a couple times. I think it would be good to be able to just classify what we mean by that as well, that in a lot of more rigid, almost laboratory-like environments, the scientific community will use more of a, de a deductive approach, meaning that they actually start out with a proposed, a proposed causation that they see. So not, not correlation, but causation. They start out with proposed causation, and then they go and try and find the phenomenon and data to support what their uh, proposed construct there is. However, on the inductive side, what they, what they do is they start when the phenomenon is observed. So we see a phenomenon, 
we actually try and understand all the things that are surrounding and the context that builds up around the phenomenon and build these constructs around it to the point where we can actually make an inference-based, induction-based proposal for what the causation is at the other end. So that's the nuance there. And that's the type of flow and expectation that you can expect from these types of activities. So I, I think to, to try and explain a little bit to what we mean by these different stages and what a theory looks like as well, as you were chatting there with some of your experiences, I was thinking back to an experience I had at a previous software company that was building software for, for tax practitioners. And we were doing a contextual, an on-site contextual inquiry, which is just an on-site visit. And as we were doing that, we were doing just some, some observations of, of people working. And one of the things that we saw is we saw one of the practitioners receive an email from the client. They took the email, they dropped it into a folder called correspondence. And we had never seen that before. And so we, we kind of dove in and we're like, hey, tell us a little bit more about why you're doing that. Like, what, what's, what's going on here? What, tell us why you're actually going through this process of, of exporting the email from your email client, getting that document, and then placing it into that client's folder under correspondence. Do you do that with all your, your clients? Oh, yes, of course. We do it with all of them. And, you know, it, it's more of like a, a CYA type of thing in case there's any type of litigation. We want an archive of all our client communications with all, you know, all our engagements. Uh, so he's like manually building a backup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's going. Super interesting, right? And so then we, we started talking to subsequent customers and we said, hey, do you have any sort of correspondence or client communications folder? Yes. You know, we always do that. Every single time, you know, we end an engagement, we download all the emails. Or as they come in, I download the email and put it in, whatever it might be. So that that was a phenomenon, right? Many, many organizations would then just go build something from that. But it's important to be able to stop, canonize, and understand that what you just saw was purely a phenomenon. You haven't seen anything that deserves or merits a solution yet. You have, you have noticed a phenomenon that you now need to be able to build more of an understanding around. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction here is you know, what happens at this stage of, of, of actually articulating, observing, and, and canonizing a phenomenon. Yeah, so you're definitely seeing the phenomenon there. And I imagine the next step would be to start formulating some hypotheses on, on why that would be. But most importantly, continue in the path of research to be able to really deeply understand, you know, why are all these customers seem to have this common trend, this, this common phenomenon of, of why are they always copying this up? You know, are they, yeah. are they worried about, you know, what kind of litigation is going to happen? If litigation does happen, you know, what are they looking for? How are they going to access it? Like, there's just so many questions that need to be answered mm -hmm. before you would even go forward to even start thinking about building a product. Yeah. I mean, because I think a lot of us who are, I think, you know, features based, you know, we immediately start thinking like, oh man, yeah, like we'll build a backup, you know, automatically log it, you know, we'll put in these different files and, and double fail safe it, you know, all these kind of fancy things that would probably sound good to the customer, right? But without going that next level deeper of understanding, we could totally miss the mark in terms of truly delivering value and really meeting the, the need that we're, that's arising from this phenomenon. Yeah, totally. And I, I think to your point, the, the principle that you're talking about here of, of trying to further understand the phenomenon, Clay Christensen describes as dumpster diving. And I've always really loved 
that that analogy of just, yeah you're, you're just trying to get familiar with the problem space right you're doing everything you can to be able to understand the surrounding context and explanations and nuances that surround the phenomenon because most likely there's going to be some nuances of how people are experiencing that phenomenon and on top of that you know you, you might even when you speak with more people you might even find out that what your initial thought and impressions of that phenomenon were degrade over time. And that there's, there's some other phenomenon that uh, abstracts from that or is more granular from that, that is more important to you and more important to your organization is more in your wheelhouse of the problems that you should be solving, uh, whatever it might yeah. be. Right. So absolutely. It, it, you have to be able to take the time to be able to, before you dive into the, the hypothesis stage, you have to take the time to be able to understand the context that surrounds the phenomenon. Yeah. So I think we've definitely covered quite a bit, you know, how this process of theory building can definitely be helpful to an organization, especially when it comes to delivering products. But let's talk a little bit about, I guess, why organizations don't invest yeah. in, into these methods. I mean, we've, we've been at several different SaaS companies between the two of us. And like I said, we see that this is, the few places I've actually seen this done, it's always done for a short amount of time, right? Like I see like a proc team will band together and they'll spend like, you know, four to six weeks and they'll do this bit of research and then like they're done for like six months to a year, yeah. right? Yep. And so with understanding like, you know, obviously organizations do see the benefit of this and they try to do it, but what are some of the things that you've seen as being like the biggest reasons why this isn't something that's continually happening, especially in- yeah product organizations yeah there's usually two assumptions and we mentioned this in the field guide as well from this last week there's usually two assumptions that are made around this type of research that lead to a lack of, of buy-in and resentment towards any sort of scientific method being involved here and the first of which is they feel like it's too taxing from an operational cost stand, standpoint to be able to integrate these types of activities. They're afraid that doing this type of research will be so heavy and so academic that it's, it's just too much of an ask for an organization to do a scale. And that's, that's false. And we can, we can talk more about that. The second of which is time to market. I hear that all the time is that we, we can't take the time to be able to understand because someone else is going to beat us to market or, uh, you know, we, we need to be able to move quickly and ship this out so that we can actually get this out to the market. And there's so much packed up into those two objections that, you know, a lot of times they're really smoke screens for much larger concerns or issues within a business. But those, those are the two most you know, common objections that I hear. And I would say when you're mentioning as far as like sometimes those really being smoke screens, like there's a few nuanced things I've seen at different companies that cause these issues to come up. Yeah. And what I think is when the product org is highly praised and rewarded when they ship product, yes. right? Like I think we go to companies. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what kind of you see this, this rise in a lot of companies doing, you know, like we ship new code, you know, every six weeks, every two weeks, right? Now we're doing continual deployment, right? And so, you know, when it comes time to recognize what's happening in the product world and organization, it's always what's been shipped, Right. Like, oh, we built and finished this feature. Right. We built and finished this product. You know, it's in beta. It's, it's not being tested and used, being purchased. Right. Like, and having that focus, like I said, can really derail you 
from looking at the impact, right? Oh, yeah. And sometimes impact can just become an afterthought, almost in some cases in that. Or when impact is just purely measured in terms of dollars, mm-hmm. right? Because as we all know, just because a customer actually decides to give you the money doesn't necessarily actually capture the value yet from the product, right? That's mm-hmm. been built, right? I mean, that could actually easily be explained with just like great marketing yeah. organization, right? And so another thing it kind of like just derails it from that. And I think what even makes it a little more toxic is if, if product teams start getting bonused or, or specifically compensated on shipping certain product, right? Yeah, I mean, I think people can easily see how that kind of really derails Ew. The incentives and yeah, exactly. Right. Kind of totally messes up the incentives for trying to deliver something that's worthwhile to a customer. Absolutely. The, the funny thing is too, is that a lot of times when I've done consulting in the past, uh, when you look at organizational leaders that have a lot of distrust in product organizations, especially if not just as an umbrella technology departments. So that could be, you know, all product and engineering and user experience or whatever it might be. But what, yeah. what causes the lack of trust the most is that when you look at like a marketing and sales organization, there's a lot of sophistication that comes into attribution and outcomes, right? It's, it's yeah. not about the amount of phone calls that are made. It's about the fact that this many marketing qualified leads came from this many phone calls being made, right? The, yeah. the funnel is entirely built to be able to understand true outcomes, which uh, are fortunately a little bit better or more, not better, but easier to be able to attribute to. So when, when, you, have an, when you have an organizational leader that A, is from that background of marketing or sales um, or B, interfacing with them quite often, and then you go to the other you know, side of the building and they're talking about how many lines of code they shipped and you are just at a loss at how to justify and understand how the investment into salaries and time there is well spent, that can be totally understandable. And we should empathize with that thought because it's, we're, we're kind of writing our own demise in that situation. We, we shouldn't be in that situation. We shouldn't be incentivizing outputs over outcomes. We should be just as concerned with outcomes that come with any value proposition in the same way. And that doesn't necessarily need to be revenue. It certainly can be, and it can be a certain, that can be a great outcome many times, Yeah. Uh, but more often than not, it's something else. So I, I think, I think organizations, to your point, have to start being focused on the outcome of the theory that they were actually even focused on. So, yeah, you know, there, there's, there's all these, these types of things happening within the org around, you know, that are, that are often smoke screens for that. I think that the taxing and operational costs aspect is usually also a misunderstanding of the amount of time that it takes to be able to do this. Many, many times the objections as I've tried to drill in, most people are assuming that this is almost a waterfall-like methodology that we're, we're saying that you have to define all the requirements up front, that it moves through seven or eight different stages before you actually ever get the requirements to a team and so forth. And that's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about a cross-functional team of engineers, product management, and design taking you know their efforts and their resources to be able to look at a phenomenon uh, within days, if not a week in my experience, understand 
what's going on with that phenomenon, understanding a lot of the context around it, hypothesize and validate within a week or two, and be writing code by the end of the month. It's the same pace that I've seen with by the time you're done with all the damn meetings with Agile, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. this, this, is, this is not yeah. a this is not a demonstrable amount of time that we're talking about here. This is a, this is a quick, nimble and highly experimental way of thinking about problem space. Yeah. And I think the point you make as far as like having a cross-functional team, I think is so important because as you see, like when you don't have everyone kind of getting a taste of the research through that theory building process, you kind of just, and innately get biased. And I think this even kind of speaks to why like theory building should be something that's understood throughout the entire organization of how you work. Cause it's always very easy. Like if you haven't been there, if you haven't actually felt and seen like what you was observed with customers or, or with uh, other individuals, like you just, just don't have the same impact. Right. And mm-hmm. so there's just something about that, about having the cross-functional there, have everyone yeah. kind of seeing a, a piece of it. Um, and kind of your point as well. I mean, even the research I mentioned earlier, like that took about two weeks, but it was just, it was a part-time thing, right? And we were all still doing our full-time jobs and things like that. And, and to your point, like I said, if you have a team that's focused on this, and this is just part of how we understand the customer to deliver better products, yeah. then it can be, like I said, like, you know, days of, you know, a week or two, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great point. I think from the, the other objection standpoint of, of time to market and, and really what goes into that, I think that's, that's super related to what we're talking about here. They're worried about the, uh, the ability and chance that they might miss a huge opportunity. But connected with that is, do they understand the fact, you know, we, we talked about this in the article, in the field guide, that the marginal cost fallacy, right, that Clayton Christensen talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, in, in your, you go to Kellogg Business School and you're, you're reasonably taught that in financial situations that you should make an assessment based upon opportunities or decisions or investments to be made or resources to be allocated, you should make a decision based upon the marginal cost delta between the options that you're looking at. So when somebody is looking at these two different situations and they say, well, Nate, I can either take the time that it takes to be able to build a guess, which I could probably do in a much shorter amount of time than what you're talking about. Or I could take the full amount of time to be able to really understand the causality of customer problems, build the right solution for them and iterate from there. Um, I'm, you know, the marginal cost analysis is pretty clear. You should go with more of this build, measure, learn process. But the problem is, is that you always end up paying the full cost. So while you made an assumption why you made a decision off of that marginal cost comparison, um, you, you always end up paying the full costs. His example of Blockbuster versus Netflix is a perfect example of that. So I think it's important for organizational stakeholders to understand that if you do not understand the problem space, if you do not understand the context that surrounds it, you will never build an offering that will be as compelling and as valuable as revenue generating, as retaining as it could be. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And I think a lot of times, even when they're doing that marginal cost analysis, there's a lot of costs that just don't get taken into account. 
like I said, most times I think when this decision comes up, they're always just thinking about like, how much does it cost to build this? Yeah. Right. And they don't take into the fact that like, well, Hey, like, especially if you're doing software, like someone's got to maintain this, right. Chances are, this isn't just like a siloed piece of code. It's touching other things. Right. And so there's going to be other complexities that get introduced to the system that some other engineers building other things you have to deal with. Right. Same thing when you're adding things into design, right. There's, there's other design considerations to be taken. And once you've kind of spent that out there, there's also kind of this cost of the morale, right? Like usually when a feature has been decided on or something's been commissioned to be built, there's a champion, right? There's someone who thinks this is the right answer, right? And there's almost kind of like this, I guess, cost of pride where like that person, if, they, if you're ever going to get rid of that feature because it doesn't work or the project just didn't work out, like someone has to kind of eat that and be like, hey, like I was wrong, right? And I think in most organizations where, where people are trying to build careers and move forward, like that's not the first thing you want to do is come back and say, oh yeah, we spent all this time on this and, and we were wrong, right? And so I think what that does, just those kind of natural tendencies lead us to hold on to these things, right? You know, we, we build it out and like, if it's not picking up, right? Even if we have put in things in place to be able to see if this is successful, we'll, you know, kind of keep justifying like, oh, let's just get a little longer, right? It's just going to take a little while for it to pick up keep on it, keep on it. Right. And it's not till like probably people have left the company and then other people come in and say, Hey, why do we even have this? You know, that gets cut off. Right. And at that point you probably have a small handful of users who are actually using that random feature. And now they're going to be a little upset because you're going to get rid of this one thing that they just happened <laughs> to discover and find and use, you know? And so like you said, like in, in so many ways, like those just little costs that I know they're super hard to, to quantify, but it's like, those are all the full costs. Like, so like, so it's one of those things that to Clayton Christensen's point, it's like you bear the full cost of if if it's not the right thing and everything from like just the build costs to the maintenance costs to what it does to your team to kind of what we we're talking about like even some bad bad conjectures that can come out as well like i mean let's just run through like you know three quick examples of like let's say you you know ship something it doesn't pick up right you can do one of two things right one you can look at it and be like oh like we just need to build more right you kind of get in the cycle of like, all right, let's just throw another feature at it, try to make it better, try to make it better, try to make it better, right? And that can kind of lead you down a rabbit hole that way. Number two is that you say, oh, it's not really worth it. Let's ditch this effort, right? Which there may be something there. Like I said, it could be one of those things where it's like you understood a phenomenon, you made a, a, a hypothesis and ran with it, but because of the lack of understanding, you didn't quite nail it, right? Which is explains why it didn't pick up. And now you're just abandoning something that could be a great opportunity. That's and then the third thing, which I think is almost just as dangerous, is like, is that if it picks up, right? Like, what if you were right, you know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like kind of justified, like we talked about, like you almost kind of start creating this persona of like, this false I'm the visionary. Like, I, yeah, exactly. I, I got it right. And my hypothesis and my intuition is correct. And I'm just going to run with it now, right? And, and if people even start thinking that in the organization, that gets a little dangerous where even if there is research done, it creates this bias, right? Where it's like, well... I know you've done research, but I got it right in the past. And so we're going to run with what I'm thinking, you know, which I think is almost just as dangerous. And once again, like no matter what the outcome is, like you bear the full cost of that. And it's usually never good for, for the company or for the customer. Absolutely. I agree. Well, we can talk about this for hours, but I think uh, we will have plenty of opportunities in subsequent episodes to be able to discuss more about theory building and the activities that come along with that. Most likely next time we'll be diving into what it takes and some of the you know corresponding activities around canonizing and collecting and aggregating phenomenon with an organization, how you can do that, how that can benefit the downstream effects of building new products. So we'll probably talk about that next. 
check out our field guides. So if you go to www.motifresearch.com slash craft notes, you'll be able to find all the podcasts and all of the field guides that we'll be publishing there. And we would love any feedback you have. Just keep coming back and sign up for the newsletter and you'll be able to, uh, to hear from us as soon as uh, a new field guide comes out. Like Nate said, go ahead and check out the field guide that goes with this podcast. It's called Intro to Theory Building. And go ahead and please comment, ask us questions, anything like that there at the bottom. Um, or you can also shoot us an email at craftnotes at motifresearch.com. And if you go check out that field guide, we, Nate's put together a great checklist of kind of the theory building activities. Um, we'd love to get your feedback on what you're doing. There's some great check boxes that you can click on to let us know. So we can kind of see where our audience is at. So we can kind of cater our content here going forward. Yeah, that's great. Also, just a little plug for Anchor. We are creating this podcast via Anchor. It has a really amazing feature where you can actually respond to the podcast creators. So we'd love for you to be able to download the Anchor podcast app and send us a reply. Love to hear from you. But until next time, we'll, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks, Trey. See you later, man. See you, Nate.